Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes there is a convenient typo, as in our epistle lesson today. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So then, as we will consider a little bit anyway from last week's lessons, we have the last line of last week's lesson, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Surely this is why we crucify our flesh with its passions and desires, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might remain ours. Last week, a lawyer asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. As part of his response, Jesus told a parable. And from this parable, we learned from Jesus that we do not inherit eternal life by fulfilling the law. We inherit eternal life by receiving mercy. The law always reveals where we fall short of the glory of God, but it cannot reveal how we are to reach the glory of God. The law shows us how we should live, It does not show us how we will live. The wages of sin is death. Eternal life is the free gift of God. What a precious lesson to learn and remember. Those whom the Spirit leads to know and believe this are not under the law. We are under grace. There is no law against such faith. And that is why there is no law against the fruits of this faith. It is only by our Savior Jesus Christ's fulfillment of the law in our place that our inheritance in heaven is won. This is the message and story of the gospel. Christ himself earns the inheritance of eternal life in order to share it with us who are sinners. He does this by pure grace and mercy. This is why the Son of God became true man. This is why he was born of a woman, put himself under the law, thus obligating himself to obey it fully as one who owed something to God in our place. He did this to redeem us who were under the law, who could not obey it fully or at all, and who stood rightly condemned. All this he did so that we might receive the adoption as sons, as it is all explained in Galatians chapter 4, right before our epistle lesson this morning. This is how we take part in the birthright and blessing of Jesus, who is both our mighty God and our elder brother. He unites himself forever to our flesh and blood, because he knows our flesh and blood. He is our creator. He knows what we are made of and how weak we are. He knows how we are inclined to trust in flesh and blood. And yet he unites himself forever to our flesh and blood in order that he might continually pour down his spirit who leads us to trust in him and him alone. This is how we inherit eternal life. It is all entirely ours by faith and therefore already ours. It is not by our obedience to the law. It is by the forgiveness of our sins, by the hearing of the gospel in faith. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption, 1 Corinthians 15.50. And so we do not 
trust in our flesh and blood. We trust in Jesus, who in our flesh and blood suffered and died for us and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Christ died to pay our debt, and he rose to give us life for death. In baptism, we are both buried with Christ and raised with Christ so that we might walk in newness of life, Romans chapter 6. The newness of this life consists chiefly in this, that we do not live for ourselves, but for Christ, who died and rose for us. Newness of life is life that is lived with Jesus, always nearby enough to hear our cries for mercy and to receive our thanksgiving. Our newness of life consists in this, that we are born again to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God through faith. That's 1 Peter 1. The power of God that keeps us is the power of God to save us, and that is why we are not ashamed of the gospel. The power of God that keeps us in the faith is the power of God that gave us faith. It is the gospel itself. We are saved by faith, not because of faith's great value in and of itself, whether in, the, in its beginning or in its aspirations or in its goal. No, but we are saved by faith because of what faith hears, believes, and clings to, even when it is weak. Living faith is faith that receives the word of God, which gives us life for death. And this is true whether faith can be compared to a mighty fire that seems to be producing its own wind, or compared to a smoking wick that needs to be gently blown upon to be rekindled. Faith saves because of its object and foundation, not because of what it ever produces. A child inherits by virtue of his birth, not by virtue of what he makes of his life. God gives us life or death, by taking our sin away and giving in the place of our sin the obedience of Jesus who suffered and died for our sins. Faith lives by virtue of what it receives, not by virtue of what it does. For Jesus' sake, God shines his favor upon us and faith says amen and thank you. The Holy Spirit leads us to Jesus. He leads us to Jesus through the gospel, through the good news of God's grace and favor towards sinners. It is the path of the just that leads us ever brighter unto the perfect day because he teaches us to know the Son of God whose grace is shining. And so the Holy Spirit leads us to newness of life by teaching us to sing the new song of Christ's victory over our sin, over our death, and over the devil. To sing the new song is to understand and repeat the gospel. The Holy Spirit leads us to do this, for here is both the source the aspiration, and the goal of our newness of life. It is God's mercy. It is God's mercy that we thank him for. It is God's mercy that we cry out in need of, and this is really the same thing. By mercy, we are taught to praise God for his mercy that he shows to us in his Son, to praise and thank him today, tomorrow, 
for the rest of our lives and even forever in heaven. This mercy is our inheritance. It is ours. It is ours to own and use and never run out of. It is made ours by our baptism, which remains an ever-flowing spring our whole life long. For out of this flows the issues of life, and it fills our hearts to know God and love Him and trust in Him. In our God, in our baptism, our God pledges to us never to run out of mercy, and so we in turn pledge to God to never stop returning to His mercy, but to count His mercy more precious than anything else in life. This is what we promise when we are baptized. It is as we sing in one of my very favorite hymns, O depth of love to me revealing the sea where my sins disappear. In Christ my wounds find perfect healing. There is no condemnation here. For Jesus' blood through earth and skies forever. Mercy, mercy cries. I never will forget this crying. In faith I'll trust it all my days. And when o'er all my sins I'm sighing, into the Father's heart I'll gaze. For there is always to be found free mercy without end and bound. Isn't that beautiful? We gaze into the Father's heart. He is our Father. He is Jesus' Father from eternity and ours by adoption because Jesus has reconciled us to him by his blood and by water and the word. We are made co-heirs with him and with each other everlasting life. Behold, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. We do not inherit by doing. We inherit by receiving, by being called children of God. So consider again last Sunday's parable. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember that? Jesus proves our point. Jesus fulfills the law and has mercy on the one who finds himself beaten and robbed, helpless and half dead on the side of the road. Remember? He shows himself to be the good Samaritan so that today we might consider what it means for us to be the good Samaritan. This parable of the good Samaritan is a marvelous parable that drives home the indisputable, indisputable truth that we are saved by pure grace and mercy alone more than we need a neighbor to do good things for so that we can earn our inheritance from God. No, we need God to become our neighbor and do good to us and give us his inheritance. This is what we learned about last week. The good that Jesus does for us is more than a helping hand and a nudging encouragement to be better. No, he didn't come to make the law more doable any more than he came to boast in himself of how easy it was for him to obey it. No, he came to fulfill the law for those who couldn't, for those for whom it was hard and impossible. He does everything. He uses what is his to help us. All the Father has is his. He uses it all to help us. Now I have to resist the urge to repeat all the lessons that our gospel lesson last week could have taught us or it can preached, be preached on a thousand, hundred thousand times, and not exhaust the lessons of divine mercy that Jesus would have us know. For now, however, I, I just want to point out one single word, and by it, relate it to our, our gospel lesson 
in our epistle lesson today, and that is half dead. Half dead. Everything in the parable begs to be interpreted spiritually. There's so much symbolism. But I've often thought about what this means, this half dead. The man was beaten, robbed, and left half dead. Why half dead? If we're to consider the spiritual state of a sinner who has been beaten and stripped and robbed, and by this to interpret such a situation spiritually, that is, as having been overcome by sin and left without righteousness, naked and ashamed and without anything of value, that's the spiritual state of man, right? If we are to interpret this parable as a lesson on our spiritual condition, doesn't it sound strange to say that he was half dead? Shouldn't he be completely dead? Well, I suppose for the sake of the story Jesus told, in order for the guy to be helped out and brought back to health, he, he can't have been fully dead. He's got to finish his story, right? So we can't press the analogy too far. For the sake of the story Jesus told, the guy had to be at least partly alive so that the Good Samaritan could help and bring the story to a happy ending with a precious lesson for us about how Jesus helps us too and brings us to a happy, happy ending. If we make a strict theological point, though, if we consider what the Bible teaches us about our natural condition, which we call original sin, and which the Bible teaches everywhere, we must confess that we are by nature without strength, dead in our sins, and that we have no spiritual life in us before Christ finds us and raises us from spiritual death. And this is extremely important. The analogy certainly breaks down if we try to imagine that we are only half or even mostly dead when Jesus comes and saves us. By nature, no. We are spiritually all dead, not half dead. I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. But I think there's more to it. For in this man, as we considered last week, we have a picture not of natural man, but of a Christian man. Yes, we are born fully dead to God, but we have been born again. And we are fully alive now by faith. Our race, however, is not yet fully run. We have not yet attained to the perfect day. We are still heading on the path of the just towards the sun. We are still heading from Jerusalem to Jericho and back every day, so to speak. And along the way, we have in us a great enemy, a great deadness and leprosy that we as living saints must daily contend with. We call this enemy our flesh, and it is rotten. Or, I should say, this is what Jesus calls it, our flesh. So consider now again what this... What the Apostle Paul says in our epistle lesson, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. There is a struggle within us. There is death against life within us. St. Paul complains in Romans 7 that the law of his members wars against the law of his mind. And by this he means that there are desires that we still have as sinners that we contend against 
sins that have been forgiven, sins that we thank God we've been cleansed from, but lo, we still see the filthiness in us. And the desires themselves are sinful, whether we carry them out or not. Like the man in the parable last week, these sinful desires, even if we don't act upon them, these sinful desires themselves, inasmuch as we can't even have these desires without entertaining them somewhat, they rob us of peace and a good conscience and remind us that no matter how we may escape the world and protect ourselves from the evil that fills it, whether that's by not having the internet in your home or or not sending your kids to the public school, or whatever it is you do to protect yourself from the influence outside. Yet the evil that fills the world proceeds from the fullness of sinful hearts, sinful hearts like our own. The problem is in us, where it always began. And we struggle with what we were born wanting until we die. And we don't want to want it, We don't want to wish it. But the deadness of leprosy is the perfect picture of our sinful condition. It is deadness in the midst of life, like a parasite, so that in the midst of life we are in death. We have death and life contending within us. And the worst part of leprosy, and the reason why they were so disgusting and unclean, isn't just because of the disease itself, which we know is actually not really very contagious at all. No, the reason it was so unclean was because the disease would numb them so that they would painlessly get cut up and wounded with festering sores and would be totally unaware of it as their flesh died while they lived. They were plagued with a horrible lack of self-awareness. And isn't this a picture of man's natural attitude towards sin, who doesn't know enough to be ashamed of his sinful desires or how to protect himself from them. Yes, it is. Talk about half dead. That sounds like leprosy to me. And it is. When we believe in the forgiveness of sins, when we are led by the Spirit, we are no longer under the law. We live under grace. We are no longer defined by our leprosy, our half-deadness. We are defined by our inheritance as righteous children of God. But our life is hidden in God, as the scripture says. Our inheritance is reserved for us in heaven, as we heard from St. Peter a little bit ago. We hold our treasure in earthen vessels, as St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. The half-dead lepers were numb to the pain and dying from their festering wounds. When Jesus cleansed the leper, not only were his wounds healed, but his leprosy was cleansed. He was no longer numb. He was pure and fresh and tender. How wonderful. He was healthy again. He could feel again both the pleasure of health and the sensation of any subsequent injury he would thereafter receive. Now that's the bummer, I suppose, of being healed from leprosy. But such pain is good for you, even if unpleasant. It prompts us to protect ourselves and to tend to the scratches and bruises that we might get. 
It is a picture again of our spiritual condition once we have been cleansed of our sins and given a newborn self-awareness and spiritual sensation. When we are forgiven of our sins, it is then that we begin truly to feel our sins. We begin to be bothered by the sins that we are constantly falling into. Sins that, though we are forgiven, continue to rise up from their source, from our sinful minds and hearts, and infect our sinfully leprous and half-dead bodies. There are sins that destroy relationships with those towards whom we should have goodwill and trust. There are sins that cause divisions even within the church of God. We are, not led, we are not under the law when we are led by the Spirit to the wounds of Christ. Yet we feel in our own wounds the festering sickness of the sin that wars within. When we are not under the law, it is then that we feel the sting of the law even more acutely. And by this, the Spirit of God leads us always to flee to Christ in constant repentance. And this is the struggle. The lepers were cleansed of leprosy. We are cleansed from sin. But until our bodies die and rise, or in, until they are changed in the twinkling of an eye, when Jesus returns, the corruption of sin remains in our flesh, and we must contend. We must fight. And by God's grace, we feel the battle. By God's grace, and with God's grace, we fight it. To us, now forgiven and redeemed, the works of the flesh become all the more evident and obvious. We oppose and condemn them by opposing and condemning them within our own selves because we feel them inside. We are tempted and we hear the stern warning that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. No, we do not, we do, not do anything to inherit eternal life. That is true. And don't you forget it. But being born again and cleansed, we learn that there is much we can do to forfeit this inheritance. So I say again, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, this sin in me whereby I am half dead and leprous, who will deliver me from the sin that corrupts my body, who will deliver me, but the very fact that this sensation is in you, that you feel your sin and hate it, this itself is proof that the numbness of leprosy is healed, dear brothers and sisters. It is an invitation to return and thank God for such grace and with thanksgiving return to him forever and ever more for mercy, to fight, to be forgiven, to rest assured that it is true and to receive from God what he promises you. A child inherits by virtue of his birth, not by virtue of what he makes of his life. Amen. So we return to our birth. We return to where we gather in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, to our baptism, our cleansing, and with grateful hearts and grace, he never runs out of here. All the lepers were cleansed. One Samaritan felt the smart. Not the smart of wounded flesh, but the smart of sin warring in his members. Only one of the lepers who were cleansed still had a deeper concern about what in him remained unclean. The other nine were content to be physically whole. We must not be. Only one remained perturbed and bothered about the source in himself of a deeper impurity. We must be. And so he did what St. Paul did, who also complained about his body of death. I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord.
he returned to give thanks to Jesus. He concluded that if this man could cleanse him from leprosy, he could cleanse him from sin, and he was right. It was this faith that saved him. It was faith that returned to Jesus in thanksgiving. The pain is good for you. Whatever you feel, whether it be physical ailments that last and last until Jesus passes by, or whether it be a struggle with sin that you seem incapable of conquering, and you worry whether you are disqualified from your inheritance, what is it that we learn from our lessons this morning? We learn to cry to him with a loud voice. Both our Kyrie eleison and our Hallelujah, we cry out with a loud voice, the one despite our weakness and sin, and the other with renewed strength and joy. We cry for mercy and we praise the Lord. We praise him loudly with all that is in us, for these are the first fruits he produces, so that love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and everything else that might bind us together as brothers and sisters in Christ might all follow in turn. And against such there is no law. Against you who have died and risen with Christ, there is no law. Amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.